It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. The judge drifts away into the hot Manhattan darkness. He knows this part of the city, Broadway, with its lights and girls and busy streets. This is his town. He's immersed in the bustle right now, as he departs a popular chop house and heads to a nearby show. He's quite late, but he hasn't given any outward indication of that. Now, all that matters to us is him, a man by himself, moving down the street. He'll be gone very soon, gone forever. The judge is a middle-aged man with dark hair, carefully slicked and parted down the middle. His face is dominated by large features, uneven eyes, a bird-like nose. He wears a fashionable-for-the-time suit and a hat that's later described as worn at a rakish angle. 
He hails a taxi, or at least that's one of the stories. He climbs into the cab, and the door shuts behind him. Then he's gone, vanished into the stream of traffic. He's never going to be seen again, at least not by anyone who's willing to cop to it. You've probably guessed the judge's name by now. Crater. He was at the center of one of the first massive missing persons cases in this country, before Charles Lindbergh Jr., Amelia Earhart, D.B. Cooper, and Jimmy Hoffa. The disappearance of a prominent New York City judge elicited a lot of attention from police, the press, political and legal colleagues, and the public. So much so that the case seeped into popular culture. Pulling a crater became a widespread phrase and a standard joke for comedians. But it all went nowhere. Judge Crater disappeared on August 6, 1930 and was never found, despite a sprawling investigation. He was never discovered to be alive and well abroad, and no one was ever charged or convicted for his disappearance and possible murder. But his name lived on, as a punchline, as an idiom, as an enduring mystery. But Judge Joseph Force Crater was more than that. He was a man, a man who lived and then likely died under strange circumstances. Today, we'll talk with an attorney and author who spent years digging into this famous disappearance, who's made finding Judge Crater a mission. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is Missing in Manhattan, The Disappearance of Judge Joseph Force Crater. Whenever I think of the Crater case, I picture a specific scene in a film that came out just four years after the judge disappeared. The Thin Man is a really fun 1934 comedy mystery. William Powell and Myrna Loy are incredible as a married couple that solves mysteries, when they're not partying or bantering. Without getting too much into the plot, the story focuses on a titular Thin Man who vanishes and becomes a sensation, first in the New York City press and then around the country. That's all portrayed in a montage. Newspaper salesmen yelling extra, extra, clips of tabloid headlines and reward flyers getting printed up, all the while the silhouette of the thin man strolls across the screen. 
That almost sounds similar to the media frenzy around the missing judge. And it's no surprise that a member of the judiciary vanishing attracted such scrutiny. The murder of a judge could be viewed as an attack on our justice system itself. But it's one thing to get a good sense of intensive press coverage around a case, and it's quite another to get a good sense of the case itself. Fortunately, today we'll be hearing from someone who's delved into the surviving case documents themselves to get a more complete picture of Judge Crater and the city where he lived, worked, and played, and met his ultimate fate. Stephen Regal is a practicing attorney, although for a while he thought he wanted to become an academic historian. On and off for about 25 years, he's used his degree in history and his legal training to research a book on the Crater case. In 2021, he published that book, Finding Judge Crater, A Life and Phenomenal Disappearance in Jazz Age New York, which is available on Amazon. We asked Stephen about his long-standing interest in this famous mystery. That's what really attracted me to it, sort of the, the blend of history and mystery, I guess you could say. I practice in some of the same courts that the judge did, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> the Crater case is sort of the granddaddy of all missing persons cases. And although recently it has not attracted much press, when I started this book in the early 1990s, the New York Times, for example, on the anniversary of Crater's disappearance, would have an article each year. Something to do with the case, um, new theories. Um, and I think when I got started, um, I must have seen some of those articles. I think New York Magazine actually had a short article in the uh, late 80s about the case. I knew not much had been written about it. And I went to the New York Public Library, you know, just going through the card catalog. I found... It's microfilm, that's how long ago it was, um, that somebody had collected articles from the Crater case over the years. So <laughs> when I saw that, I kind of just thought, this is, I'm fated to do this <laughs> to do this book or this project. And uh, it gave me a good start because many of the articles about the case you know, we're over three decades. That was kind of the initial impetus that got me going. This August, Crater will have been missing for 92 years. Sometimes very old cold cases can feel removed from us. Tragic, but distant and hazy. So we were interested that Stephen even got to talk to at least one person who'd known Crater himself. Could you just talk us through a little bit of the process of researching and writing and putting this all together uh, across those years? Sure. I did have an interview with Simon Rifkin, who uh, was a partner at a very big law firm. He was a friend of Crater's and a colleague, and he, as you said, reported him missing to the police. He provided a lot of it was somewhat disappointing in that he had always taken the view that Crater was a very upstanding lawyer and judge. 
and that because that's how he the capacity he knew him and from the start of his disappearance he always told the press and in public announcements said that it had to be a random robbery or or something that uh, that led to his disappearance because he couldn't you know imagine Prater doing anything wrong <laughs> or illegal and so i interviewed Simon Rifkin about a year before his death and i was hoping that maybe he was on in years and he just wanted to clear his conscience or whatever but he ended up pretty much parroting what he had said um all throughout which was he couldn't believe that Crater would ever get involved in anything untoward or uh, improper and uh so anyway but the I, I think the major step i took in my research was i made a request uh under the freedom of information law of the new york city police department records and i nobody had done that before and there was only a fraction of the documentation that was in the police's possessions you know at the height of the case but they had they call them DD5s they were forms that detectives would fill out every day internal documents just you know saying witnesses they had interviewed new leads and they were i think indispensable to the book because the couple of books that have been written before this on the crater case were based on mainly newspaper articles contemporary articles which as you can imagine in a the media frenzy that was unleashed after the disappearance were often um inaccurate about details and quoted people inaccurately goodness knows we've experienced this exact same phenomenon you dig into a case and the more you find out the more you encounter errors in contemporaneous press coverage. It's unfortunate, but it's the nature of the media. That's not to knock journalists, obviously, but sometimes the first draft of history could use a run-in with an editor's blue pencil. But anyways, let's get back to those incredible primary documents that Stephen turned up. So here I had basically the detective's daily file of what they were doing in the investigation and like i said that was indispensable i think to coming to any kind of explanation of what might happen to him the rest was mainly uh, another big source was court records i was familiar with some of the courts that he practiced in and one of the this big prominent theories of his disappearance was it was in connection with a foreclosure of a hotel on the lower east side and so i got access to court records from that case and that really helped at least in addressing the libby the what's called the libby's hotel theory of his disappearance 
Like most long-term cold cases, a number of disparate theories have cropped up over the decades. To sum it up, the Libby Hotel theory of the crater disappearance holds that the judge was taken out, possibly as revenge for the foreclosure of a luxury hotel on the Lower East Side. One thing we've run up to in Indiana is that, you know, oftentimes police don't want to part with old files because they claim that they're still investigating them. Did you run into anything like that with this case in New York? You know, it's so old, but at the same time, it is, I assume, technically open. Yeah, no, I didn't have a problem with that because the NYPD had closed their case in 1979. And so it was a closed, unsolved case, and they... Yeah, they didn't give me any issue with they were still investigating it. But you you may have heard that in in 2005, the Crater case came came up again, and the NYPD reopened the case. Interestingly, at that time, I had written the book and done all the research, so I volunteered to... uh, provide any information, which the police department politely declined, and they ultimately closed it, I think, six months later again, and concluded that the clue, which was an old lady's scribblings, um, which were discovered after she died, and basically had this theory about what happened to Crater that was totally unsubstantiated, and I think the police also concluded it was just a crazy lady's scribblings, you know, that they had come upon. And, and like I said, they, they closed it again in 2006, I think, for the last time. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I want to ask you uh, to tell us a bit more about the sort of central character in your book, even though obviously he went missing, you know. You know, but like I love the title "Finding Judge Crater" just because it's it's very interesting to get to know this kind of enigmatic figure. You know, just tell us more about Judge Joseph Force Crater and you know what what you were able to find out about him and and sort of what he was up to and whether you kind of did find out that he was possibly tangled up in some corrupt stuff. He was a very prominent successful lawyer and then judge. And what struck me about him was he had been made a judge when he was 41 years old, which at the time was a very, very young age to be appointed a judge. And looking at him, I he was born in eastern Pennsylvania. You know, I did a lot of research there, but he, he was basically a a self-made man who came to New York City as a Columbia Law student and then within 20 years made an amazingly big name for himself, um, not only in, in the legal field, but in politics, family politics, which um, I'll come back to the answer to the latter part of your question. And he was a very prominent person on the Broadway scene. He liked nightlife. He was a womanizer. He hung out a lot at nightclubs that were very big during the 20s, theater aficionado. And so he was big in uh, in the nightlife. I mean, people actually recognized him, you know, in the nightclub that he frequented. He was very, very successful, very, I guess, canny in his ability to, to work the very complicated worlds of New York City law and politics and nightlife. And he, but at the same time, he, he was, it was hard to really get inside his head. Um, one of the reasons was his, his wife died, at, I think, in the early 60s. He had no children, so there was really no family to go to. He was very secretive. One of the themes of the book is he's kind of like a chameleon. That he seemed to inhabit these different worlds of the city. And people in, who knew him in one such as Simon Rifkin in the law sphere, 
had no idea about what his life like was as a prominent Tammany uh, district club president or his nightlife. So he, he kind of led this very segmented life. And he, of course, didn't have any papers that he left. So in that sense, it was very hard to get a real sense of what was going on inside him. So so that's kind of the book is, you know, the Finding Judge Crater is, you know, in the respect of that he disappeared and finding out what happened to him, but just placing him in his time and, and place, which was fascinating world of the city during the Roaring Twenties and the Jazz Age. That was important, not just for the background, but I think that was key to my, to the conclusions I came as to what happened to him. Because to understand really what happened to him, you had to know who were his close friends, accomplices, who you know, who who were the people around him immediately and what events were happening around him. That was also key, which I think, um, you know, other authors of, there's only one real other book, but, um, but in articles also, I think the authors have neglected to really look at what was happening contemporaneously. To, to when he disappeared and once I started going through the newspapers around the time of his disappearance he wasn't known that he was lost until a month after he actually was yes you heard that right Crater wasn't reported missing until about a month after his actual disappearance he was alone in New York City while his wife summered in Maine and Stephen will describe a bit later why his friends and colleagues were hesitant to set off too many alarm bells. But so when I went back and looked at the newspapers right before August 6th, 1930, which was the date of his disappearance, a number of things, you know, popped out in the news that directly would have impacted him. And... So no one had really taken that historical view of his disappearance. And I, I found that key to, um, you know, determining what, what ultimately happened to him. If you could walk us through the events of August 6, 1930, talk us through this very mysterious, famous disappearance. Okay. I'll, I'll kind of just say on the surface without saying what I, what subsequently was learned. But he woke up in his Manhattan apartment. He was alone. His wife was up at their summer camp at Belgrade Lake, Maine. And just days before he had rushed back from Maine to come to the city three days before. So on the morning of August 6th, he got up, went to his chambers, his judicial chambers, 
and his clerks immediately noticed something was off. He is usually kind of a very gregarious, um, outgoing man. And he basically went into his chamber room, closed the door, and went through his papers and, and things and organized papers without any explanation. And then he, he called his deputy clerk in and said, I'd like you to cash two checks for me at the bank account, which were at the time in very large uh, amounts, totaling about $5,200. And no explanation again, just get me checks for these large amounts of money. Uh, One of his clerks described him in, in the police reports, again, in the newspapers, none of this came out, but in the police record that he was obviously distraught and troubled by something which they could not figure out what exactly that was. Anyway, after he had been in his office arranging papers, he called one of his clerks in and said, can you accompany and bring with you these two big litigation bags and and some folders that I want to bring home. Again, no explanation. So the clerk went home with him in the taxi. He, he Before he got in the taxi, he, interestingly, again, from the police reports from the clerk who was with him, when he got to the door of the Supreme Courthouse, there's, uh, which is still extant, uh, there's a long flight of, of stairs. And his, his clerk later told the police that he stood at the top of the stairs, kind of looked nervously around as if somebody might be watching or seeing him, and then kind of scuttled very quickly down the stairs and into the taxi cab. During the taxi cab ride, the clerk said he was just unusually silent and preoccupied with something. So they get to his apartment, which was right around Union Square Park on Fifth Avenue, and the clerk brings these litigation bags and piles of documents with folders which he didn't get a chance to look at, the clerk, and drops them off, and the judge thanks him and makes a obscure comment, which I think was at the time, it didn't get any of the attention it should have gotten, which is that he told his clerk, I'm going up Westchester Way, and we'll see you at the chambers tomorrow. That comment, I think, really did not become clarified until some clues that came out 25 years after he disappeared. Anyway, he was alone in his office, uh, in his apartment, no one knowing what he was doing (laughs) because he was alone. And then around 6 o'clock, he... Interestingly, 
took his initialized calling card case and some other item that had his initials on it and left them in the apartment. The police later found them. And then he ended up next being seen in Broadway, which was one of his favorite places in the city. And he purchased two tickets at a ticket office that was run by his friend for a show, a Broadway show, that night. His friend afterwards told the police, and again, this didn't come out in any of the press accounts, that he was surprised that because this very show had been in a trial run in Atlantic City about a week before. That play, by the way, was a comedy called Dancing Partner. And this ticket broker had been with Crater at the at the performance of that same play that was now on Broadway. He didn't ask Crater about, you know, you know, you just saw this. Why, why do you want to see it again? He just said, I'll have the ticket at the theater box office. Next, Crater is seen going into Billy Haas's Chop House, which was a restaurant on West 45th Street between 8th and 9th Avenues. Billy Haas's Chop House has been lost to time, but the restaurant once stood at 332 West 45th Street in Manhattan. And it was a regular place um, that he frequented. He knew the proprietor, Billy Haas, and he, he was a, re- a regular there. And he came in the door, and first Billy Haas was there, and actually commented, like, something seems to be really wrong. You know, you don't look good, Judge. And Crater replied, oh, it must be my high collar that I'm wearing, which was kind of ridiculous because he always wore a high choker collar when he dressed up. And the other weird thing was uh, Crater unexpectedly ran into a Broadway friend of his, William Klein, who was the attorney for the Schubert brothers dynasty in the city, the theatrical organization. For those of you who aren't familiar with Broadway history, the Schuberts were a prominent theatrical family behind a lot of shows. They were even referenced in the lyrics of at least one Cole Porter song. Anyways, Klein was not alone that night. He had a chorus girl girlfriend with him. Klein told the police that also something seemed to be off with Crater. He couldn't tell but he was not his usual talkative self. He was seemingly embarrassed for a reason that later also came up from the police file because unbeknownst to and not reported in any of the news reports, Crater had been to that same exact restaurant two nights before 
and he had run into Klein's friend and also this chorus girl at the same restaurant two nights before. He was in a much better mood. He told William Klein that he was going back to Maine imminently, like in a day or so. And, you know, everything seemed fine. So the comparison, that immediately struck me. Two days later, he's still in the city, and he runs into Klein, of all people, who he's told, I'm going to be out of town by this time. So that's obviously why he was embarrassed. And he never explained what had happened to keep him in town. He just seemed very blue and, and, and uh, depressed that, uh, on the night of August 6th. So, I mean, that to me, you know, immediately says, well, what happened between two nights before and when he saw Klein at the same restaurant? And then two nights later. And again, just a knowledge of the contemporary things that were breaking in the newspaper were indispensable. So anyway, after this kind of desultory dinner with Klein and his chorus called Friend, they walk out. Crater says he's going to see the show that he got tickets for. And they're outside, and he hails the cab that pulls up on what 45th Street. And he gets in it. Klein and Sally Ritz, the chorus girl, say goodbye. And that's the last he's seen of them. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's where we dropped you off at the top of our episode. Standing on the curbside, watching the taxicab ferry the judge into the unknown. Throughout the decades, that's where most observers of the case have remained. But Stephen's going to take us deeper into some of his findings. Two things about the taxi struck me as strange. 
the theater that the tickets were reserved for was a block and a half in the opposite direction. Wyatt, he hailed the cab outside the restaurant on West 45th Street, which only went west at the time. So why is he even getting into a taxi if he could have walked around the corner and picked up the tickets? The tickets were never picked up, by the way. The other thing was they got out of the restaurant a little after 9 o'clock when Prater hailed the cab. And that was the the Broadway shows at that time started at 8 o'clock. So why is he going to a show, especially a show that he's already seen, although fine and his girlfriend didn't know that. But why, why is he going in the middle of the show? And that's pretty much the last that was ever seen of him, uh, dead or alive. Would you mind sort of telling us or laying out a bit about what you think happened to Judge Crater and, and why? Well, uh, I'm hesitant <laughs> giving up the, uh, you know, what my explanation is. Uh, but I, I, I think it's first of all different because the theories of Crater's dis- disappearance have fallen into sort of two camps. One of which was he was bumped off, killed by somebody. And the other, which was very prominent in the decades after he disappeared, was that he voluntarily, usually thought to be with uh, on the arm of a chorus girl, uh, he was married of course, just disappeared and went to the other side of the world and, um, you know, started a new life. So my explanation is a blend of those two. And I think is one of the reasons it was so hard to figure out what happened. I mentioned before he left his calling card and initialized, I think it was a watch or something, at his apartment before he went to Broadway. I mean, obvious sign that he wanted to voluntarily disappear. The money that he took out that morning, large amount of money, over $5,000 in cash, that also suggests he is thinking of absconding, disappearing voluntarily. So so there's a lot right there suggesting, you know, in his last movements on the last night he was seen, there's a lot suggesting that he voluntarily disappeared. So my theory starts with that, but ultimately concludes that he wasn't able to complete his escape, his, his dis- disappearance, that other persons wanted him dead. And what, another interesting thing about the crater case is there are a lot of different theories of why people wanted him dead. Those theories of the case have included everything 
from the judge voluntarily running away with a mistress, a flawless hit by Murder Incorporated, a random robbery homicide, or even a conspiracy brought on by widespread corruption among New York City's political elites. Kind of like an Agatha Christie uh, <laughs> type of novel. He had his his chorus girlfriends, and he actually had a kept mistress for the last five years. Might have tried to blackmail him, and he could have been killed in that process. Um, there were some of his clients when he was a lawyer who had a motive to get rid of him. There were people he was associated with politically, and Tammany Hall had clear motives to get rid of him. There was suggestions that he had bought his seat on the bench. That was another theory that people might want to silence him. So I, I don't want to give too much away, but I think it's pretty clear, especially from the news, the contemporary news in the days before and after that somebody who was close to him politically in Tammany Hall was ultimately responsible for intercepting him as he was trying to flee and basically was nervous that he wouldn't be successful in his attempt to play and, you know, assume a new life somewhere and who actually decided that he had to be silenced. I don't want to give names or anything, but that was kind of a, a key reason why people couldn't figure out what happened is that there was kind of a confluence of his wanting to voluntarily disappear and then being stopped in that effort that made his disappearance such a confusing, unsolvable case. I should add also, just factually, he wasn't reported missing until uh, a month after he actually disappeared. And there were reasons for that his friends and his judicial colleagues didn't want it brought to the police right afterwards because they were worried he was on a bender or he was away with a woman and he was up for re-election that fall for his ju judicial seat and basically his close friends and colleagues said we're going to look for him and try to figure out his, his wife was in Maine this whole time. And so they made a private search and then ultimately couldn't figure out what happened to him and didn't go till to the police, like I said, till a month later. You know, which, you know, as you can probably figure in a criminal investigation, is very bad. You know, people lose their memories, even in the mud. The taxi driver who he got taxi cab he got into was never identified and I think maybe because 
it was a month later and a taxi driver had so many different trips that, you know, why remember, you know, one guy um, a month later? You know, if it was three days reported to the police, three days later, it made a difference. So, I mean, that set back the whole investigation um, completely. Obviously, a judge, such a prominent judge at that, this attracted a lot of attention at the time. And I guess, could you talk us through a bit about that, the impact that this had on, the, you know, New York at the time and, and sort of how it permeated into the culture? It was just tremendous news when the story broke and probably for at least the next year, you know, every development was reported in the, in the New York papers and then national papers to a, to a lesser extent. But his disappearance occurred in the midst of growing scandals involving Tammany Hall, which was the democratic political machine that literally ran the city at this time. The mayor was Jimmy Walker, who was a colorful character in his own right, but a firm ally of Tammany Hall. The government just threw out, and that was part of what the machine ran on, was patronage, you know, uh, contracts that the government could give to the Tammany loyalists. And this was the start of a series of Tammany scandals that would lead to the Seabury investigation, which actually the first one started right about the time Crater disappeared. But that was the investigation by Samuel Seabury that ultimately led to the resignation of Jimmy Walker, the criminal prosecution of many Tammany officials, and that happened in 1932, two years afterwards. And and some of the Tammany scandals involved Tammany judges who were getting bribed for parking tickets, um, getting out of jail, free cards, kind of like minor corruption. And so stories of that were beginning to break. So the story that the Supreme Court Justice, which was very well of respected position and not filled by Tammany Hacks at all. Really, it was a very fine court. And most of the people elected were very good judges. I mean, they... Still, some of them were affiliated with Tammany and might have done little things on the side, but it was a very prestigious uh, judicial seat. So, so you have, you know, Supreme Court justice vanish in the middle of rather growing Tammany scandals. It also had a huge impact on the election that fall, re-election of. Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was running for re-election in November that year. And it was very important, crucial election for Roosevelt because he had been elected in 1928 in a real tight election. 
he barely, they didn't know until the, the day after that he had actually won. And he, of course, was planning his run for the U.S. presidency in 1932. So it was crucial that he have a huge victory in his reelection as governor of New York State in order to set him up to run for the presidency. And Frater's disappearance and other family scandals happening right around the same time was it was a huge hot potato for him because Tammany controlled the voters in New York City and they represented about half of the voters in New York State and so he couldn't antagonize Tammany without them not voting for, for Roosevelt. And, but at the same time, he had to win some votes upstate New York too, which was more conservative, more Republican, more dry in terms of prohibition. And he also, to get their vote, had to show he could stand up to Tammany Hall. So Roosevelt was uh, this tightrope of not antagonizing Tammany, of not antagonizing the anti-Tammany, which I think he was more personally allied with because um, Roosevelt was no friend to Tammany throughout his political career. So anyway, so this blows up in uh, the midst of this huge election. The Republican candidate for the for governor makes his com- campaign about all about Tammany corruption and why reelect a governor who's going to be beholden to Tammany and Tammany and is going to protect Tammany. And not only the crater grand jury was going on then in the middle of the election, but um, another grand jury investigating two Tammany politicians who were both in Crater's district club. That was the name for the kind of neighborhood Tammany club. One of which was the uh, Martin Ely, who was the district leader of the local club, which was an incredibly powerful position back then. And they, there was an investigation into whether this other member of Crater's Club had been appointed a city magistrate a few years before by paying off his district leader. The rot seems to have gone quite deep in the city at that time. Stephen told us he'd prefer to avoid revealing all his conclusions in an interview. But you can read about them in his book, which again is available online on Amazon and in places like Barnes & Noble. In the text, he sets out his case for what he thinks happened to Judge Crater and why. But before we go, Stephen will tell us all about how he came up with the title of his book. In our opinion, it pretty much sums up this bizarre case. I got got the title from an anonymous limerick 
that was right in the middle of this election campaign, Roosevelt's campaign for re-election and the Healy, Ewald grand jury and the Crater grand jury. And it was a limerick. And the last words were something to the effect, the mystery's great and will be so much greater if they make a mistake and find Judge Crater. We'd like to thank Stephen Regal for coming on the show to discuss his work. To our surprise, we've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So, if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on the murder sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet and on Facebook at M Sheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to the murder sheet, please leave us a five star review to help us gain more exposure and send tips, suggestions and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>